Hi, I'm Neil Stavum. Here's the podcast for Connecting Faith. Enjoy the conversation. Real conversations about how we live out our faith every day. Welcome to Connecting Faith. Well, good afternoon. I'm Joe Bender in for Neil Stavum today. Welcome to Connecting Faith. Well, today we're going to talk about how God specializes in lost souls. One of the most well-known parables of Jesus is that of the prodigal son, the boy who left his father's home, squandered his inheritance, lived a life of luxury and a bit of debauchery, and then... When he returned home, his father not only welcomed him back, but threw him a party. Well, maybe you have a prodigal of your own. Maybe you've been a prodigal yourself. As we look at uh, at the lives of two who've been in that situation today with a book by Jim Putman and Bill Putnam, Hope for the Prodigal, Bringing the Lost, Wandering, and Wandering and Rebellious Home. So both Jim and Bill have a story of their own to tell about not only being a prodigal, but having a prodigal. Let me tell you a little bit more about them, and we'll get them on the show. Jim Putman is the senior pastor of Real Life Ministries in Post Falls, Idaho, one of the most influential churches in America. A pastor's kid turned prodigal who was won back by his father and mother. Jim also had a prodigal of his own, his oldest son. But with God's help, Jim won him back, and he is now a pastor as well. He's a three-time All-American wrestler in college as well as a successful wrestling coach. Jim holds degrees from Boise State University as well as Boise Bible College. He is the author of Church is a Team Sport and the Power of Together, as well as this book we're going to talk about today, Hope for the Prodigal. And his father, Bill Putman, served in ministry for more than 50 years as a pastor, a church planter, or as an executive. He currently serves at Real Life Ministries as a servant leader over Team One and is part of the Legacy Team Ministry. He and his wife, Bobby, have five grown children, including Jim and 14 grandchildren, and they live in Post Falls, Idaho as well. Welcome, Jim and Bill. Good to be here. Thank you for having us. Well, it's great to have you here. It's just reading about your family, of course, makes you makes a person reflect on their own, and you have such a compelling story to tell. This parable of the prodigal son is really about, like you say, three sons. Can one of you unpack that, if you will? Yeah. Uh, well, Dad, why don't you why don't you explain that? Well, I'm a I'm a dad of five kids, and I wanted to be a really good dad. And I wound up investing more sometimes in other people's children than my own. And before long, it it just produced in my family a rebel in Jim and some failures in some of my daughters and myself. And uh, God didn't just help us survive. He, he helped us uh, thrive to the place where I'm just a grateful dad. Hmm. Well, Jim, you know, a lot of times when when we use that word prodigal, we use it only in the context of kids whose parents uh, raised them in the Christian faith, but then the kids went off the rails and walked away from Christ. But that's only one picture of what it means to be a prodigal. There's actually a much broader definition. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, when we talked about the tale of three sons, um, in, in the prodigal son, there's the story of the son that stayed at home. Uh, he seemingly did everything right, uh, but he was bitter when his his younger son, 
our younger brother came home. And so even though he was in the home, he didn't have the heart of the father. He didn't understand the father. He was actually angry at the father. He resented his brother. So even though you wouldn't have seen outwardly that he was a prodigal, he was a prodigal. Uh, and then you have the younger son, obviously, who was who was obvious. He left. He went and did all the things he did. And um, uh, and so you knew he had he was far from the father. And so you've got that prodigal. And then then the third son that we talk about is is Jesus Christ. So what does Jesus Christ tell us? It was Jesus was the one who was telling that story. And so in a tale of three sons, you've got the two different kinds of prodigals, but then you have the Son of God coming to tell us how the Father feels about the two prodigals. Jesus came to say both to the obvious prodigal and to the uh, less obvious prodigal, both of you have kind of missed it, but I love you. Mm. I want you. I care about you. And so the story of the prodigal son, a lot of times people... um, they just they, they want to focus on the son that was lost, or they want to focus on you know Jesus's point. The story was told to the Jewish Pharisees, who um, you know he was trying to say, listen, this is the heart of the father, uh, and so you know Jesus's point was being directed at the Pharisees who were like the older brother, who were upset that the younger brothers were coming. But but again, um, this is a story about the son of God delivering a message, a in-flesh living message to two prodigals, two forms of prodigals, that I love you both and I want you both. Mm-hmm. And so in, in our churches um, and in the world we live in, often we, when we say prodigal, we think we're talking about that kid who went out and did obvious things. But, but everybody, every son is a prodigal of some kind in different varying degrees, has their own struggle, their own problem. And so what do you do? Uh, what's the message of Jesus to them, and what ha- what did Jesus do that we could follow? Um, we could follow his pattern, God's pattern of dealing with prodigals that draws them both back. And uh, so, what it, what what do, what would God have us do to win back the prodigals in our lives? Varying different kinds of prodigals, the more obvious and the less obvious. Because again, I deal with parents all the time that are. When I talk about a prodigal son, they, they, you know, they, they don't they don't realize that they have prodigal kids, because their kids have a job. They maybe they're running a business, they're married, they have grandkids. Um, you know, they visit church every once in a while, so they don't think them. They think of them as successful and not a prodigal. But from God's perspective, if they're, it, it, you know, Jesus said, "I wish that you were hot or cold, but because you were lukewarm, I spit you out of my mouth." That, that that child that may not be as obvious it, it can be just as far from God and in 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 salvation as the one who's out there doing crazy stuff. So there's a variety of different kinds of prodigals Christians are dealing with. They're dealing with maybe kids that they brought up to know the Lord that aren't being committed, aren't on fire for Jesus, or are way out there. What part can we play to draw them closer? Well, there is so much to tell in that story or to see in that story. And I think sometimes we do miss that that subtle rebellion of the brother who was left behind because he didn't want to accept his brother who had returned. And there's a story there, too, isn't there? Yeah, there is. I, in, in, in my life, I, I had my son that was obviously angry and went out and did all the crazy things he did. But when he came back, 
I, I realized as my my middle son got older, he was very angry at me and at my older son because so much of the energy of our family went towards this kid. You know, we were always concerned, always praying, making decisions based on the one who wasn't there and who was who was out there in the world. And and our son felt our, our middle son felt like he was stolen from. And so so there. So he actually became a prodigal in a different way. Uh, he wasn't obvious. He wasn't outwardly sinning, but he was angry at me. He was angry at his brother. There was separation. And um, he didn't want to celebrate when his older brother came home. And so we had both kinds of prodigals in our home. Well, and Jim, you, you were a prodigal yourself as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah, my dad uh, was a... My, my my mom and dad were always sincere in the faith, but my dad was kind of a first-generation pastor Christian. And so, you know, I think he struggled to, to discern the difference between God and the church. You know, it's God first, family second, church third. But one thing that can happen to a pastor is that God and church kind of get mixed up. And so from my perspective, um, my dad was he loved me and he was sincere in his faith but he had hard time setting boundaries for when when a person calls in the middle of dinner or when a person needs help and how does that fit with family life and i i resented the church i re, i felt like the church uh took some of our place and the church didn't treat my father very well in my opinion or my mother we were we didn't have very much money uh, it was like living in a glass house. It was just it wasn't wasn't great for me, and part of that's just my own rebellion. I mean, it wasn't. I, I can't blame all that on my father, but I I resented the church. I, I felt a lot of shame and guilt, and 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 started um, you know athletics was my game, but when I wasn't doing sports, I was drinking and partying and everything else. And so by the time I graduate from high school, I'm I, I I'm a Christian because I grew up that way not in practice, but at least I would say I was, but I was very angry at the church and, and already having problems with drugs and alcohol. And when I went to college, you know, what was left of my faith was destroyed through, um, you know, my biology teacher and my philosophy teacher in college, just slamming Christianity every step of the way. And so I got to the place where I just believed that Christianity was what you were born with. If you were Buddhist, you were born with that. Uh, and it, what, none of it was true. Evolution explained how we how we got here, and it was a crutch, and it's for weak people. And and now that there wasn't much reason not to party and do the things I wanted to do, I, I went full bore into that, and and it took over, and it destroyed my life, and I became a very violent, um, destructive person that not even my friends really could trust. And and I went out and did everything I thought was going to make me happy and it made me miserable and and I it, it led me to the place where I had no relationships but no matter what I had done to my parents and I had humiliated them every step of the way in high school and and it had hurt them in every possible way no matter what I did my dad didn't get off the rock he didn't quit on his faith he was sincere and secondly, he never quit loving me no matter how much I humiliated him. Mm. And so I knew that he loved me. I didn't understand why. I knew he had something that I didn't. Um, 
even though I was hurting him and the church wasn't very nice to him, he had something inside of him that made him get up in the morning and have hope that I didn't have. And because he, no matter how many times I tried to burn down the bridge, and he he wouldn't let it be burned down, he kept pursuing me with boundaries. He didn't let me do whatever I wanted. Uh, I couldn't just come home and do anything I wanted, but he he would say, no, son, I can't let you do that, but I love you. And and when you're ready to to meet me middle ground here, I'm and so my mom and dad were used by God to um, reel me back into a faith. Well, it's such a powerful. Yeah, Joe, the, the, Go ahead, Bill. The, uh, the point I would make, Joe, is that at, at some place along the line, uh, my own fears and doubts and inadequacies as a, a person and as a parent just overwhelmed me to the place where I didn't have anything in me to give away. Mm. And I discovered this truth, that there's only one thing wrong with Jim, but because that one thing was wrong with him, nothing much was right. Mm. And that gave me hope. I couldn't stop his drinking or his drugs or his violence. I couldn't make him uh, behave in such a way in our home. But I think because he did not have Jesus Christ, he couldn't. It's not just that he wouldn't. Mm -hmm. And when he came to Christ, uh, that was the beginning when I brought my brokenness and my inadequacies as a person, as a husband, as a father to the Lord and realized that I couldn't unless I had Jesus Christ as the Lord and Savior of my life, and neither could you. Mm. That gave me hope. So if you're a parent out there, or you're a wife or a husband of someone who's being a prodigal, the way to pray for them is not to get them in church or get them in the Bible or get them baptized or get them this or get them that, but to help them come to face-to-face with the reality that they need Jesus. Well, the title of the book is Hope for the Prodigal. That's what we're talking about today with Jim Putman and Bill Putman about their personal stories of not only having a prodigal, but being a prodigal and how that steadfast faith is what continued to bring them hope, hope in the Lord. We'll have more of their story when we come back on Connecting Faith. Connecting Faith. I'm Joe Bender and for Neil Stavum today. Well, just so blessed today to be able to be speaking with Jim and Bill Putman about their book, Hope for the Prodigal, Bringing the Lost, Wandering, and Rebellious Home. Well, Jim and Bill both have their own personal stories about uh, having prodigals in their own life. And Bill, uh, you were talking just about how 
even as a pastor yourself, as you were trying to raise your children to know the Lord, you still had uh, some rebellion in your home, and, and Jim was, was leading the charge there. How did you stay steadfast in your faith and steadfast in your love for your son, even though you were in crisis, Bill? Well, my wife and I made an agreement that we, we would try not to get down on the same day, and that was helpful. We made a a commitment that we would have a, a date with each other every week, and we couldn't talk about money or kids, so we could stay close together. We began to interview people that were, in our eyes, successful parents, and we would ask them two questions. What would you do the same, and what would you do different? Hmm. And in the midst of that, we discovered that it wasn't so much that we were faithful. It was that our Lord was faithful. That I, I, I remember going to the doctor uh, and uh, being sick of heart and body and sitting there waiting to go in. I picked up a Reader's Digest that had in it uh, a, a circle thing, and it said, uh, when you wake up in the night and you don't know where your child is or what they're doing, Please remember that God loves them more than you do. And our prodigal may be in the field working or going to school and acting right, but have a a sick heart. Or our prodigal might be sick with sin, out actively playing out what's in their mind. And they can run from us, but praise the Lord, they can't run from our wonderful Father. You know, isn't that the truth? There are times when I feel as if my my love for my children just is going to make me explode. It is so strong. And to think that God loves me and my child more than that, it's sobering, isn't it? Yeah. So as you were continuing to just love on and support and kind of set boundaries for your son to come home, Bill, um, how did you determine what those boundaries would be? Oh, I wrote a contract, and uh, knowing that he was a liar and uh, conveniently forgot things, I made 50 copies and put them in a drawer. (laughs) And I made him sign it before he came home, and then when he said, I didn't sign that, I'd go get another copy with his signature on it. (laughs) Uh, Bobby and I threw him out several times. But I remember the day when he knocked on our door. You know, when you have to knock on your parents' door, something's wrong. And uh, I, I went to the door, and I said, yeah. And he said, Dad, I'm not saved. And I said, I know it. How'd you find out? He said, I was telling these two girls what I believe. And I realized I didn't have what I was talking about. I want to be saved. I said, well, when? He says, now. I said, then what do you think God wants you to do? He says, I, I, I know you baptized me, but I didn't make any difference to me. I, I'd like you to baptize me again. I said, when? He said, right now. I said, where? Down at the irrigation ditch. So we went down there, and he stepped in, and I fell in and floated downstream. But praise be to the Lord that there's not been any days the same since then. Uh, The Lord became his Lord. 
not just mine and my wife's. And he has made all the difference in my son. Jim, the, the, you, you know, let me just say something about that. There are several things that he did. Um, you know, he never allowed me to live out my sin at home. He would just say, if you're going to be here, this is my home. Um, you know, most of this happened when I was 18, 19, 20, 21 years old when, when uh, I'm talking about right now. But I'd come home for Christmas or whatever, and and he would say, if you're going to be here, then this is what that looks like. You don't have to be here. You're a grown-up. You can find somewhere else to stay. But this is what it looks like to be at my house. And and uh, and I, if I wanted to be home for Christmas, that was he put it in my court. Here's 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 what I'm willing to do. I, I can't participate in your sin. I can't be like Eli, with his sons that that allowed sin to be underneath where I'm at. But I love you. He didn't fight about the things that didn't really matter. He didn't want to talk about whether I had tattoos or hair, or those kinds of things. He didn't. He didn't drive it into me, you know, and fight about things that weren't salvation issues. But there were definitely things that he would talk about and. And then um, he would call me every week, and when I was at college, and um, one of the one of the times he called me, I'd been drinking all night, and I was hungover. And he called me in the morning, and he's he always would ask, you know, how are you doing with God? Where where are you at with God? And I, there, during the, the first part of that time, I had been drinking so much that I, you know, I had no money left, and. And so I was careful not to tell him everything I said, I, I believed, because he was he was sending me money for books, I would tell him, or whatever. So I hadn't really come out with my atheism at that point yet. But he he called and said, how are you doing with the Lord? And I was hungover, and I just said, Dad, don't talk to me about God anymore. Uh, you believe in God. I don't believe in God. Darwinian evolution explains how we got here. You're Christian because you were brought up Christian. Buddhists are Buddhists because you are brought up Buddhists. There is no God. And he said, what are you talking about? There are tons of uh, scientists and the that are theists and Bible-believing. I go, no, there isn't. That's an oxymoron. So he started sending me books from scientists and articles and stuff. that, And, and, I, and I would stockpile them, and I would never read them, you know, and I, I didn't really care to even research in, at that point. But then he would say, hey, you know, I, I remember calling one time, because I needed food, you know, I had spent all my money, all my scholarship money, all my student loan money on, you know, debauchery. And he said, so you need food, huh? And I'm like, yeah. He goes, well, I'll send you some money, but you got to read that book. Jim, I have to ha I have to stop you just for a minute because we have a hard break coming up here at the end of the hour. But we're going to continue with Jim and Bill Putman on their book, Hope for the Prodigal, and hear more of Jim's story as well as Bill's as we can also discuss what is it that you can do if you are a parent to build your home up as a place where your kids won't want to leave or build your home up to be a place where your kids want to return. We'll talk more about that when we return on Connecting Faith.
Welcome back to Connecting Faith. I'm Joe Bender in for Neil Stavum today talking to Jim and Bill Putman about their book, Hope for the Prodigal. Uh, we do have a few copies to give away. We'd love to get those in your hands if you are struggling with either having a prodigal son or daughter or maybe just wanting to make sure that you know all you need to know to just ask God for help to create a home in which your kids would want to return. You can give us a call at 877-933-2484. That's 877-933-2484. Rachel is available to take your calls and put your name in a drawing for one of those books, Hope for the Prodigal. Well, Jim, when we took a break, you were talking about how you were at that point where your dad had faithfully provided you with some resources on who Jesus was, what Christianity was all about, and you hadn't considered them quite yet. Well, I'd grown up in a Christian home, and I'd heard all the stories, but the why questions, at the time of my life where my dad would have probably answered the how do I know this is true questions, Mm -hmm. I was so rebellious, he was just trying to keep me alive. I mean, the things that you would like to be able to tell your kids about why you believe what you believe and your real answers beyond just the story of Moses or whatever, if your kid starts rebelling at an early age, you're you're not even thinking about that. You're just trying not to let them burn down the house or destroy the school they go to or their, or themselves. And so I had all these why questions that were never answered. How do, how do I know that's true questions? And, and because when I did what I did, he didn't let the relationship get burnt down, so to speak. He kept the relationship going. That created the conduit by which now he could start sending me information about the real questions I had. And again, I just said, there's no evidence for the Bible, and and there's no evidence for God, and all those things. And so he started me down the road of, okay, there's a God. And I, and I, and I started reading scientists, and there were good arguments. And I was like, wow, okay, maybe there is a God. Well, which God? And I wanted to be a Buddhist, because uh, Buddhism, there is no hell, and you're God. You just don't know it yet. And that fit perfectly with what I wanted to believe. About myself, and so then I started. Uh, he challenged me to start uh, reading a book called *Evidence That Demands a Verdict* by Josh McDowell that had to do with historiography. I was a history teacher, so you don't just go a book is old, therefore it must be true. You there are criteria by which you decide whether something's historical or not. And he challenged me to compare religions to see if one of the religions was true or not historically, and that led me to Jesus. And then then that led me to okay, holy moly, there is a God. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the Son of God. I'm really going to hell after everything I've done. There, I am. There's no way I can be saved. And then, then he led me to the gospel, and he led me to Jesus. And, but it was a step by step journey. And uh, at every step of the way, he kept pursuing me, kept loving me. There were boundaries, but but he kept putting. Th- and he couldn't make me. There were seasons where I wouldn't listen, I wouldn't read what he wanted me to read, all that. But he just kept loving me anyway. And as the world me apart piece by piece he was the one there ready to help well a lot of parents are listening today and they're just wondering they're not sure what to do they're not sure how to continue to reach out to their son or daughter who has moved away from the faith and maybe is rebellious or or not willing to listen as well both of you have who have had uh, sons who've been prodigals so what can we do or not do as parents when a child starts living like a prodigal well from my perspective joe <clears throat> forgive me for my cold today i i think that the, the thing that god has taught me is that you have to start on the only one you can make decisions for and 
that's yourself. Some of you parents are out there, and the, the, the home is so filled with conflict or disillusion that it's caused a divorce or a separation. Start on the only one that you can make decisions for. What does God want you to do and be with your circumstances? Your children and your rebellious mate or whoever the prodigal is in your life, they know how weak you are. They know what buttons to push. But when they see God begin to make you different than you were, they have to believe in the risen Christ. I, I, just, yeah. I just know my wife and I began to say, let's rebuild. We had four kids. Uh, we've had pregnancy. We've had rape. We've had rebellion. We've had isolation and depression. And me, I had a nervous breakdown. And if it weren't for the precious Lord Jesus Christ, I wouldn't be here. Our marriage wouldn't be intact and healthy. And our children wouldn't love the Lord in us. Start with the only one you can change. Go to Jesus. Yeah, I, yeah. I would say a drowning man can't save a drowning man. They both go down. So yeah. it, is your life on the rock? And is your marriage on the rock? I mean, uh, it, again, you start with you. And then get into it, you know, start pursuing getting on the same page with your wife or your husband. And sometimes that's not even possible. You have two completely different versions of, of what they, th they think ought to be done. Sometimes your kid's a prodigal and your spouse doesn't even think they're a prodigal or care. So you start with you. But I, I would say um, one of the major factors that, that I saw my dad do at the time I resented it, I didn't like it. But then as I was going through, the cool thing about my dad is he not only helped me come back to know Christ, but when, when my son becomes a prodigal, he became kind of an advisor of what not to do in my life. But he, in both cases, he, he lived this out and he suggested, he said, be real and honest about it. Because what happens with Christians is they're so ashamed, they go into isolation, and, and the way in which God plans on helping you and encouraging you is through other believers. If you're a part of a church where you can't be honest and confess that you're struggling, that you're doubting, you always have to have the answers, mm -hmm. uh, there is a grace that God gives through other people to you. The way in which he strengthens you is through others. And so not only did my church family here uh, allow me to be me and to be struggling and to be battling and help come alongside me as a pastor to support me, but they also loved my kid and I invited them into the process, and in, in part, the reason my son came to know Jesus and want to be a part of the church was because he saw the church respond to me. They didn't throw me out and say, you don't have your act together, so you can't lead. They loved me, prayed for me, cared for me, let me be real, walked me through it, and then they loved him too. They didn't resent my son because of what he was doing. They would minister to my son, and so these people... God did something in these, this group of people that not only strengthened me, but reached out to him. And so now he's like, this is the church is the, where I want to be. They're mm -hmm. a help to me. They love me. And so many people, uh, it, you know, it's like a me and Jesus mentality, and I don't need God's people, and I'm ashamed to tell anybody, and I go into isolation. That's exactly where the devil wants you. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things you talk about in your book is that 
an important step that parents can take is to help our kids develop strong relationships with other believers. And a lot of times we leave that step out, don't we? Yeah, I would say um, part of the way you keep your kids from being prodigals is that you're not the only voice speaking to them. You've, you've actually led your family to build relationships. Relationships are like ropes that hold you fast. And, and so not only do you, if they've got like other adults, other families, other people speaking into your kid's life, they're able, they're able to say things that you would like to say and be heard, but their kids won't listen to you because you're dad. These people are able to reinforce those things, but also once your kid does become a prodigal, it's it, it's not just leaving you and your family, it's leaving all of their friends, and those friends oftentimes are the ones that will draw them back and help you draw them back. Well, and it seems like we kind of forget that step. Our, our children are so great at listening to us when they're young, and then as they become teenagers, it's true. We all of a sudden don't have all the answers, and they don't even ask us for the answers like you said, they need to be part of that church and see how Christians are operating. Other believers are loving them despite what's going on in their personal lives. That's why it's important not just to go to church. We don't go to church. We are the church. That's a completely different um, um, understanding of God's family, the church. And again, most people visit church once or twice a month. Uh, they they don't really um, spend time teaching their kids on the front end, and, and, and they chase their kids around doing sports, and their kids are too busy to be in youth group. They're, they're, they don't really have a lot of relationships, and then their kids go off to college. And then they come back for Christmas, and you're sitting there with them at the Christmas table, and they're telling you that, that you know, truth is this relative, and, and uh, you know, they're, they're, they're liberal in their thinking in every possible way, and there is no God, and you're going, wait a minute, how— that's not what I believe. Where did you get that from? Well, from college. You just paid for their college or got them a scholarship to send them to a place that's going to teach them something absolutely different than you believe, and you're surprised about that, and you didn't have them ready for it because you were too busy to get them involved in relationships, youth group, the things. You didn't do the pre-work, and now you're upset about what happened as a result. And so there, there's a lot of that that goes on. When somebody didn't do the pre-work and their, their kids are a prodigal, there is a way to uh, to, to do your part to win them back. But I would just as soon be more proactive and not have it on the first place. Mm. There's so much rich information in this book, Hope for the Prodigal. And both Jim and Bill, you've put your heart and soul into this book, not only telling your story, but helping parents as well. And there's really no foolproof way to keep your child from becoming a prodigal, is there? But you do offer some really great suggestions on how to get started and lay a great foundation. Can either of you speak to that? Yep, go ahead, Dad. Oh, I just, I, 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 just I, I want you to know that wherever you are, in whatever circumstances you're in, our Lord Jesus promised to the disciples that in John 14, verse 18, I will not leave you desolate or alone. I come to you. It doesn't mean we won't be desolate, that our circumstances won't be filled with wounds and hurts and disappointment and failure. But he promised he would not leave us in that condition. And I am so grateful for him and for the difference he's made in our family and our lives. And I'm watching him through the church 
reach out to those that are broken or drowning in their pain and come to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's hope for you and there's hope for me. Isn't that good? Such great news. Yeah, Yeah. and and here's the deal. I think when you do things Jesus' way, you have the best chance of getting the outcome uh, that God wants. But that there is no guarantee of that. Um, we, we, we say it this way, there's God's part, my part, their part. I can't do God's part, I can't do their part, I can only do my part. And even if I do my part, and even if God does his part, doesn't mean that it's guaranteed that that person is going to do their part. I, I think about uh, one of the, the greatest things that I was, I was so discouraged one day. My son had just gotten arrested. I was at church, supposed, supposed to be, you know, the, the, the helper at church as a pastor, preaching all that. And I just felt like um, I was ready to give my resignation because I just didn't feel worthy. And, and I had this, this person come up to me and say, Jim, um, I want to I ask you a question. I said, sure. He said, you know, in the Garden of Eden, the greatest father in history lost his two kids. What did he do wrong? And I was like, whoa. Because, again, I, I, you fall into this, if I do the right thing, I'm going to get the right thing. No, remember, God gave people free will. He gave people choices. Jesus didn't do anything wrong with Judas. Judas chose to sin. And uh, remembering that we can only do our part. God's working because we asked him to. But people have to choose. Mm. Well, Tim and or Jim and Bill Putman, Hope for the Prodigal is the name of the book. We thank you so much for it. I am encouraging you, if you are a parent, pick up a copy of this book. We do still have a couple to give away. Otherwise, you can pick one up on your own. In fact, there's a middle section that's labeled 14 Powerful Ways to Respond to a Prodigal that is worth the price of admission for this book. Jim and Bill, thanks so much for putting your heart and soul into this book, for helping other parents who are in this situation or just able to create a situation in their home where their prodigal can be welcomed home. Thanks so much for your time today. Blessings on your day. We will be right back on Connecting Faith with Tim Muehlhoff. Welcome back to Connecting Faith. We'll every other Wednesday. We get to talk Christianity and culture with our friend Tim Muehlhoff. Tim's a professor of communication at Biola University, where he teaches classes in family communication and interpersonal communication. He's authored a number of books, including Authentic Communication and Winsome Persuasion. And Tim, well, you can say that authentic communication was a really important part of Martin Luther King's uh, communication, the way that he talked to people. We just celebrated him this week and was also gifted in that art of persuasion. So what can Christian communities learn from him? Well, my goodness, I, I think they can learn both his style and substance. And um, with my students, when I teach rhetoric, which is public persuasion, I always read to them what I think is the finest sentence in rhetoric. Um, it, it was a letter that he wrote on scraps of newspaper while he was being jailed in Birmingham, Alabama. 
and he gave it to his lawyers, and they eventually pieced it all together. And it, it has become what generally is considered the finest, most persuasive uh, piece of rhetoric in American history, and it's called Letter from a Birmingham Jail. So I'd like to read uh, for your audience one sentence that I think is the finest sentence outside of Scripture uh, ever to be penned on American soil. So here, here is the one sentence. Now, hang on for a second. It's a long one, but it's a good one. It's what Martin Luther King Jr. says. Oh, and let me just put it in context. When he's jailed in Birmingham, uh, there are nine white pastors who are pleading with him, please don't bring your nonviolent marches to Birmingham. Give us time, and we promise over time things are going to change. And this is um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s response to why he cannot wait, and this is what he says. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, brutalize, and even kill your black brothers and sisters with impunity, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her little eyes when she's told that fun town is closed to colored children and see the depressing clouds of inferiority begin to form in her little mental sky and see her begin to distort her little personality by unconsciously developing a bitterness towards white people and when you have to concoct an answer to a five-year-old son asking an agonizing pathos daddy why do white people treat colored people so mean when you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corner of your automobile because no motel will accept you when you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs reading white and colored, when your first name becomes nigger and your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and when your wife and mother are never given the respectful title Mrs., when you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next, and played with inner fears and outer resentments, when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. Mm. My goodness. That is one sentence, Joe. That is a, a very powerful sentence. Yeah. And so what I think he does is he, he doesn't just use vague terms. He, he doesn't just say, listen, there's racial oppression happening in Birmingham. So I'm sorry, I can't wait. He, he names it. He, he gives instances. And when he gives instances of evil, it, it causes compassion. Uh, right now, Michigan State University is going through this horrible situation where there was a, a trainer for the U.S. Uh, Olympic team, uh, and he brutalized uh, over 100 young girl gymnasts. And right now, he's being sentenced. And each one of the witnesses are given an opportunity. This is amazing. It's taken three days to get up and speak to this trainer and say, this is what your evil has done to me. Mm. And I think that's the lesson, Joe, of Martin Luther King Jr. is let's, let's name evil. So women are being treated really poorly. So let's name and identify and describe what sexual harassment actually looks like. And it might make us feel uncomfortable. It might be graphic. But I think the message here is let, let's call evil what it is and let's be descriptive 
And when we are descriptive, then like Martin Luther King, we say, listen, we just can't wait any longer. We've got to act about poverty, homelessness, the abuse of the transgender community. The time to act is now because what I've just described is happening on a daily basis. Well, and it does uh, broaden that um, saying that our parents would use all the time if someone were mistreating us to say, well, put yourself in their shoes. That is kind of what we're doing with the way that we're able to communicate what exactly happened to create an understanding, because how are we going to get compassion until someone actually knows what it is that we need compassion for? Yeah, I think you're right, Joe. And remember the book of Hebrews? It's interesting. The writer says, I want you to pray for those in prison as if you were in prison. And I think that's really powerful that the writer of Hebrews would say that. So I think it's good for us to uh, put ourselves in the position of those that are being oppressed today. You know, Matt Damon, who I generally like as an actor, and he's doing a great water project, uh, getting clean water to millions of people, recently came out and said some slightly disparaging things about women coming out about sexual harassment. Well, just on uh, the Good um, the Good Morning show, he got up and said, you know what, I spoke too quickly. I needed to shut up and listen to the pain of these women, and I, I just spoke too quickly, and I apologize, and I want to do a better job listening. Mm. And I think that's good. I think it's good for us to sit back and be a little uncomfortable as we listen to what what people are struggling with in our own communities and across the world. Um, and let's not get tired of suffering. I mean, the, Syri- uh, the Syrian refugee crisis is still happening. Women are still getting abused today. Uh, there's still homelessness. Um, people in Haiti are still trying to recover. Uh, Las Vegas victims are still trying to put their lives back together after that shooting. So let's not get compassion fatigue, which is understandable, but let's open ourselves to the pain in the world because God wants us to respond to that pain. Well, and the church has such a big responsibility here, even in the interview that we just did on on being a prodigal. This this man said, I came back to the church because the church continued to love me. They showed Christ's love to him. And until he experienced that for his himself, he wasn't able to see how the church could be any good. It seemed they seemed like outsiders or like he was the outsiders and they were on the inside. How can the church do a better job of making sure that they say we are welcoming those who have maybe strayed? Well, Joe, I think the answer to that is we need to welcome them. It's fascinating that the stereotype of the conservative Christian church is that we're unwelcoming and that we're unloving. Uh, I did all my graduate education at a secular university, my master's and my Ph.D., and, they're in, and I didn't come out right away and say I was a Christian. I actually was on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ at the time, and I just didn't say it right away. So I got privy to private conversations about conservative Christians, and Joe – we, we're, our reputation is that we don't love the transgender community. We don't love the gay community. We, we, we don't love refugees. And that our, our churches are closed. You have to pass a litmus test before you can walk into our churches. And I'm saying, and I think you're saying as well, is let's open those doors. Just because we welcome people in doesn't mean we're condoning a lifestyle. But people need to know that they're loved even if they don't change They're still loved, and that door will always be open for people to experience Christ's love and forgiveness. It's such a, it seems like such a great thing to say and such a difficult thing to do. A lot of people may have um, 
their opinions instead of Christ's opinion of of how a person is valued. So what's a step that we could take that would kind of start to change that or at least start to change that in our minds so that we can be welcoming, so that we can remove that stereotype, so that we can be a church that is um, welcoming to all? Well, Joe, I would say let's widen our horizon. Let's read some stuff we normally wouldn't read. Let's expose ourselves. I just saw a documentary, Joe, on ESPN. It was called Becoming Matt, and it's about a transgendered athlete, um, a woman becoming a boy in high school and still wanting to run on the track team. And, Joe, I've never seen uh, a documentary on a transgendered high school student. And it, it was heartbreaking to see how he's been treated. And, you know, the uh, suicide rate among transgendered is roughly 40% attempted or actual suicides. Now, I don't know what I think about the transgendered issue, right, when it comes to high school athletics, right, and the Olympics. But, but the first job is to feel the pain of this transgendered student becoming mad, Right. At least to say, listen, I am so sorry you were treated that way. And and I can't imagine being a high school student and navigating such hatred uh, towards you and navigating your sexual identity. Right. So my very first job isn't to say, okay, Matt, let's talk about the transgendered issue. No, let, let me first acknowledge your pain and the hurt. And then later, maybe we can talk about Right, a biblical perspective of something. Mm. Such great advice. Always great to talk to you, Tim Muehlhoff. Just wonderful perspectives and challenging for all of us who claim Christ as Lord and need compassion for others as well. Thanks so much for joining us today, Tim. Thanks, Joe. And thanks for joining us on Connecting Faith. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to this Connecting Faith podcast. These conversations are available because of listener support. And you can make a gift right now at MyFaithRadio.com. To avoid missing future editions of Connecting Faith, you can subscribe to the podcast today at iTunes or your podcast player. And thanks for sharing this audio link with a friend and growing the awareness and impact of Connecting Faith.